This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the show. Ellen Lee Beta with you. Today, we're looking at self-harm among teenagers. Recent research suggests that self-harm among teenagers is on the increase. And today, we are exploring why that might be. Before we go any further, this is a warning that this discussion may be a trigger for those who are affected by self-harm. Very shortly, we will hear from Mika, age 20, who has self-harmed since the age of 14. Mika has since been diagnosed with anxiety and depression. We'll also be joined by Fiona Brooks, Professor of Child and Family Health at the University of Technology, Sydney, and John McAloon, Senior Lecturer in the Graduate School of Health and a Clinical Psychologist with UTS. Um, I was actually quite young. I was 14, 15. I was just going through a rough time in high school. I, I didn't really know was going on I suppose. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about that rough time in high school? What was yeah um, I was attending an all-girls school and as you know an all-girls school is a bit <laughs> uh, they get a bit catty and um, I think with all of that going on I was uh, I was just having a really hard time processing it and I couldn't really deal with it anymore so I didn't really want to tell people about it so I tried to just self-harm I suppose. So self-harming was an escape? Yeah it was yeah it was just a way to um to kind of release all this emotion that was happening inside of me. And how how often would you self-harm? Um I guess it depend it depended on the week or the day I guess um, a lot of the time it was probably uh, most nights I would go home and this wave of like sadness and depression would kind of just hit me and you know I'd cry and I wouldn't know what to do and I couldn't talk to my parents about it um, my family was also going through a really rough time at that moment as well so are you happy to tell us a little bit about what was going on with your family at yeah that time? um When I was in year six, so I was 12 years old, uh, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And um, I think he he passed away when I was in year 11. So when I was 14, 15, I was like year nine, year 10. Uh, At that point, my mom couldn't really focus on my mental health and also my dad's stage four kind of cancer. And I didn't really want to burden anyone, especially my parents about it. Um, so I think I, I used to kind of be by myself in my room uh, and pretend everything was okay when I stepped out of the room. But um, yeah, so to my mom, I was doing fine. It was a really tough time. Yeah, it was really rough. Yeah. And how, so you started self-harming when you were 14, 15. Yeah. How long did it continue for in a, in a, the really In a bad, really bad way, I yeah. think up until... You're 12, so 17. Now, Fiona, I might bring you in here now. 
is this behaviour quite common among teenagers and adolescents? Yeah, yeah um, the prevalence studies that we have at the moment suggest that actually self-harm is increasing and has been increasing across the decade. So the general kind of estimates of, of self-harm among the population, um, adolescent population, is around 14 to 18%. But some estimates, and, and certainly our study in the UK, suggests it's now around 22% and 32% for all 15-year-old girls. So Micah's account is, is, very, is a very typical account of um, girls responding to increased pressure, poor emotional well-being, and responding to that through self-harm as a, as a release. And that's a, a, a very typical account, particularly if they find, from our research, we found that the three domains that kind of are protective, but also the absence of those domains can actually lead to self-harm, are uh, school belonging, so feeling you belong in your school can actually be protective against self-harm, but not belonging may also be a determinant, as well as um, family issues and family communication issues and community belonging, feeling you belong in your community. So all of those can be really solid protective issues. When they're absent, they can also be determinants. Why is, uh, why is self-harm increasing among adolescents? Um, we don't know, actually. Um, Certainly other risk behaviours are declining, while um, emotional well-being is also decreasing. So smoking, drinking, um, all the traditional suspects around adolescent health and well-being are in decline. And yet emotional well-being is also declining, particularly among girls. And there are all sorts of speculations about why that might be the case, and we are seeing associations with that. So um, increased school pressure increased pressure around um, job competition um, and and concerns about their future, Um, increased social media usage which may increase girls feeling judged and then therefore that feeds back into their peer relationships and pressure at school. All of that may be creating a kind of negative circle for, for young people. And is this prevalence increase, is that just in... I know your research has been in the UK previously. Is it just in the UK or is it across the Western No, the, the, the prevalence levels appear to be across all the major OECD countries and other countries as well. So um, it does seem to be, certainly on the increase here in Australia, and the levels are definitely very high. I've recently looked at stats for New South Wales and they are actually increasing quite significantly. I'm interested in, you said it's quite common in girls. Is, mm. it, is it common in boys as well? It, it's, it's often seen to be a predominantly girls' behaviour um, and sometimes belittled because of that. But it's not exclusively girls, but boys are, uh, are much less likely to undertake self-harming behaviours. They tend to act out in other ways and uh, to undertake other types of risk behaviours. Whereas girls, uh, particularly you know, from Micah's account, didn't want to be a burden, that's... Uh, didn't could feel they couldn't talk to others. That's very common in girls' accounts, I think. Mika, what sort of who did who did you go and see for help? Um, I saw my counsellor, my school counsellor in high school, and she was really good. Um, I also saw my first psychologist, who was not very good, <laughs> and did possibly made things worse for me. But I think that was just on their kind of account. So how old were you when you started seeing the school counsellor? I was 15. 
And was that after you'd started self-harming? Yes. So did the school counsellor know you were self-harming? Um, yes, yes. And for people, for young people who might be listening, do um, Fiona and John, you might be able to jump in here, but do school counsellors have to tell parents that their students are self-harming? Yeah, there's a responsibility for the school uh, that has a duty of care to inform parents um, about things like this. That may be through the school counsellor, it may be that parents are brought in to discuss, or it may be that parents are contacted out of school. Is this what happened to you, Mika? Um, I think my counsellor told my mum I was having a rough time, but I don't think she really knew that I was self-harming. Can I ask, Mika, what, what do, you said you thought the, the, your counsellor was really helpful, mm-hmm. but the psychologist wasn't so helpful. What was it that was really helpful? What did you find that was really positive that helped you? Because I think other young people might like to hear that. Um, my school counsellor was incredible. I loved her. Um, she would just make everything a really nice environment. Like whenever I came to see her, she'd always offer me some tea, some biscuits. Um, and we talked about things that were making me unhappy and possible ways to kind of change that in very little steps so they weren't really drastic and I didn't have to feel much pressure while doing them. Um, I saw my psychologist uh, like two times. Um, and, after how, the, and how old were you when you saw the psychologist? So it was around the same time. I was 15. I was in year right. 10. Um I just didn't like the way that she communicated with me. I remember the first time I sat down with her and she asked me, the first thing she asked me was, how do you feel about your dad dying? I just, I didn't like that. I was like, I'm out after this. Like it was, it was a really cold, scary environment. I didn't feel as if I was like, I was safe. Uh, Like my mental health was safe. You know, I feel I felt like she wanted to get into my head and not really kind of help me the way that my counsellor would have wanted to help me. Have you seen other people? Have you yeah. sought help from other people? Yes. Since? Yeah. So what's that difference between the ones that have been helpful and the ones that that haven't been helpful? Uh, the ones that are helpful do try and get to know you better on a personal level. They they um, they ask about your hobbies, your interests, how things are in your social life, um, if there's any particular things that you don't really like doing. I remember my... Um, psychologist now she the first time I kind of really spoke to her she offered me um, some advice to get out and possibly exercise more and I told her I hated exercise (laughs) I hated physical activity (laughs) so she was like oh I I understand that I totally understand that that." and she was okay with that and there there are so many other alternatives and I think that's what's really important is when you see a good psychologist they don't really kind of chuck your interests out the window and they don't chuck your um, dislikes out the window either they kind of um they kind of incorporate those and you build up on on kind of ways to to cope based on that i've heard it said that different psychologists work for different people Mm. yeah i think so i think it's an interpersonal interaction it's a human interaction and it's almost like the moment you lose that you know you've lost the whole game um and, and just like it is that, different people get on with different people. 
I've been to a psychologist who I thought was absolute rubbish. I've been to another psychologist I thought was fantastic. And I see psychologists every day of the week. <laughs> you know, so they're all sorts, all shapes and sizes. So we're kind of on the topic now of how health professionals, how well educated mm. they are to deal with adolescent mental health issues. John, you are a psychologist. How would you rate psychologists' expertise in this area? Um, it's a tricky question. Um, Australia has one of the most unfortunate psychological systems in the Western world where we have so many different categories of so many different people, unlike the States or the UK, for instance. I, I teach child mental health, um, child and adolescent mental health at UTS, and part of what we do um, on Tuesday, for instance, we had a, a, a three-hour lecture workshop on self-harm, suicidal behaviour for our master's students. So they go out into the workforce um, prepared to engage that topic and actively expecting to do so. I think I've seen variation across the profession and ability to engage, willingness to engage, fear of the subject, and also degree of understanding of the subject. And I know Fiona's has similar a similar response across other professional groups as well. Fiona, you've looked at GPs, yes, I believe. Yes, we're starting to look at general practice. Um, and what some of the evidence is showing though, is that general practitioners aren't really confident in many instances. Some are in many instances about um, responding to young people appropriately around this issue. Some do adopt a more stigmatising approach, believe it's sort of attention-seeking or and don't listen to the young people. And what Micah's account really powerfully illustrates is that it's really important to listen to young people and to take what they're saying seriously. Um, and that's the starting point that any health professional, any adult in the young person's life can adopt. I think that's an incredibly important point because for people like us who are working in this area, we have to take you as the expert in your own life. We have to <laughs> say, you know what's going on. We can bring some level of whatever to that, but you're the expert. And if we fail to understand that, then we just miss you completely. Mika, how did your your mum find out that you were self-harming? Um, I think she kind of had a a clue but it's kind of I think it's a cultural thing when uh, when Filipinos kind of see the signs but they kind of pass it off as a phase um, especially because um, they they say oh I've been there I've been upset before but you'll get over it I don't think she realized that un until um until it got so severe uh, in about year 11 um, mid year eleven, late late year eleven, when um I was, uh, I eventually tried to take my own life, and I was sent to the hospital. I think, I think that's when my mom knew, this is really serious. It's yeah. something that we need to fix. In the emergency department, our emergency department staff, do they understand what's going on? Did you feel that they understood what was going on? No, not not at all. Uh, I was I had to I had to sleep in in the waiting room for about seven hours until I saw someone. They um, and what they did was they questioned me, asked me why I was self harming, told me that I was young and I shouldn't be self harming, <laughs> and then uh, and then told me to go home and get some rest. So there was no there was no follow up. 
there was no offer for help or for any um, further help. Yeah, I after that I had to see a psychologist, uh, my new psychologist. Um, but that was basically um, the the emergency department staff didn't do much. Um, I think they just passed it on to another to the mental health department. It was really tiring because I had to tell my story about like four times in the span of two weeks. <laughs> And Fiona, is this something that you've seen in your research? Yes, it's certainly a recent Australian report also identified this as a, as a key issue, that um, in emergency situations, young people aren't always dealt with appropriately, and my account is appalling, and that they may have to be repeating their story over and over again, sometimes professionals who aren't supportive, and that can actually um, cause young people to be to self-harm, actually, uh, because they're not being responded to appropriately. So we really do need to start getting this right. There's a few themes in your story that I just want to pick up on a bit more. John, this may be a question for you. Is when people, when adolescents self-harm, is the intent suicide? Mostly not. I think mostly not. I think the evidence that we have is clear on that. Uh, and that completed suicides are uh, an incredibly small proportion of self-harm. Mika, when it got to that extreme, what was what was different about that time? Um, you have so much emotion that you just can't feel anything anymore. And I think when it gets to that point, you're kind of all, all your rationality goes out the window. So your ability to kind of empathise with yourself is just gone. You, um, at, at that point, you kind of just don't think about the consequences anymore. And it gets to the point where you're so numb that you're just done, you know? Like, when, when it hits that point, um, yeah, there's so much built in that it's trying to get out and then it kind of just suppresses itself and... You just want to get out. So what, what happens, when do you go from a person who self-harms to someone who wants to take their own life? I think that's a really fine line. Um, with me, it was always a roller coaster ride. Um, a lot of the time, I was just feeling really upset, so I wanted to release it. But when you feel as if you're so upset all the time 24 7 there's nothing to do you feel hopeless you feel worthless i think that's when you start to feel as if you'd want to take your own life and um yeah i don't really know the professional side of it but that's i guess that's my experience with it I think there also there's possibly also a habitual thing about yeah. it that you've set up this way to alleviate distress or you've set up a way to alleviate tension or something like that and, and, and for whatever reason and we don't know this well yet, there are various theories, but for whatever reason that works. And so when distress comes along, when tension comes along, when um, you know, very large emotions come along, then that becomes the strategy that you um, you know, uh, and it takes a lot of practice to find other strategies that work as well. Uh, often strategies don't work as well. You mentioned your mum found out 
in a not, probably not the best circumstances. Yeah. How did how did your relationship change after you were hospitalised? My mom took it better than I thought that she would have taken it. At first, she was really shocked and she was really upset. I remember she cried a lot. Um, but I can imagine why she'd be really upset. I think from then, she's a very strong lady, so I think from then uh, she did whatever she could to help. Um, I think she realised then that mental illness is something really, really prevalent in <laughs> in an adolescent's life. Um, she stopped working just to take care of me full-time, um, just checking up on me like all the time. You know, uh, if I wanted to go out she'd take me out and all that kind of stuff and she'd um, help me with um, coping mechanisms so she'd look up all these ways to help me cope on the internet and she'd read books and everything like that it's great how's your relationship now with her as, it's, a, as a result of this it's journey? great it's good she knows she knows um my symptoms so much better now um i think we've developed a stronger relationship where I'm able to kind of tell her hey I'm not feeling too well today and she kind of just knows what to do and how to respond. In high school what was the reaction of your friends when they found out that you were self-harming? Did they know that you were self-harming? Um, a few of them did and a few didn't really like it they they just said why are you doing that? No! Um I'm not going to be your friend anymore if you keep doing that. Uh, not, not very helpful messages. Yes. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, my best friend was really supportive with it. She kind of just listened a lot. and She didn't really put any pressure on me. She was just there for me all the time. Fiona, friends, parents, they you, you've identified mm -hmm. them as big support networks. Yes. If they do know someone who is self-harming, what's the best thing that they can do? Well, I think Micah's story illustrates the best best strategy, really. Listen to the young person, take them seriously, and um, don't treat mental illness as a stigma, but actually it's something that needs to be responded to appropriately. On that stigma, Mika, you're very passionate about the stigma associated with self-harm. I think we've kind of... We've done really well to reduce it, especially in depression, but self-harm, it still seems to be there. How, do, how does that make you feel? Yeah, it makes me feel really upset. Um, I don't understand why there's such a big stigma around it. I mean, if someone's self-harming, why would you make fun of that person? Why would you associate that person to be, like, crazy or psycho? Or attention-seeking is atten a big one. Yeah. Is it? Is it, well... Is it attention-seeking? Let's bust this myth. I don't think there's any evidence to support that idea. I think people are are in a situation where they're very distressed and they're unable to find other ways to assist. I think it's you know there are, there are a range of theories, but often the stories you hear come down to that stuff. I think it's um really important that we don't negate um, young people's experiences by calling it attention seeking mm. because actually if young people are in distress then they they are entitled to support from their surrounding adult community and that's the approach we should have rather than dismissing it as attention seeking. It's worth thinking about in terms of 
our society mm, as well. That we've been able to grow facial hair and deal with men's health. We've been able to put on all sorts of colours and go to cricket matches and deal with breast cancer. This is just another one of yeah. those things that we need to get our head around yeah. and and take as okay and deal with. Yeah. Something, uh, John and Fiona, that you've brought up is health professionals have this fear of young people and self-harm. Where, where is this fear coming from? Well, some, some of it's lack of, of proper training around dealing with young people. So, um, and the way we set up the healthcare system, we have paediatricians who are specialists in young children and we don't really have enough specialists in adolescent medicine and adolescent health. GPs may not get specialised training in that, dealing with that group. Um, and so they, they don't know how to respond appropriately with the best will in the world. And sometimes they're short of time and they know it's an issue but don't want to raise it. And if a young person's presenting with something else as the major, like a sore throat or you know tummy aches or something like that, then they may suspect self-harm, but they may not address it. Mm. And there's a, I think there's a big lack of confidence yes. about responding in a way quite understandably that may be helpful maybe of assistance I don't want to go there because I might make it worse that sort of stuff Mika you said that you started self-harming to release all this tension and stress that you felt when you feel that way today what what do you do how do you release that um it's it's kind of hard because there is stress that I feel I can manage and then there's stress that I feel like I can't do this, I need to do something. Um, With a lot of the stress that I'm dealing with right now, I have a lot of kind of self-care tricks that I have up my sleeve. A lot of people that um, also kind of help me in in dealing with with my stress and they also have a lot of um, tips and tricks to um, for for self-care. Yeah. Would you be able to share some of those? I was told that because of a lot of um, the stress in my life and also because of all the anxiety, I have um, a lot of excess energy. So I joined an Oztag team. So you exercise? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's great. Um, it's, it's great because I'm with my friends and I think that's what makes it awesome. Um, and a lot, of, uh, a lot of my tips at home are to just... I have just this stack of colouring books at home and I know a lot of people are like that's so cheesy and so corny and stupid but it really helps and um, I like taking a lot of long baths when I'm feeling super super tense Um, I chuck on some friends DVDs and make a hot cup of tea sometimes I like taking naps and, um, and sometimes I write and play music you know that helps a lot I think it really depends on what your hobbies are and how you can cater your hobbies around uh, around your stress you're studying psychology now too yeah is, is does that stem from your experience yeah it, it does um, and I don't know I've always I've always loved helping people and um, just seeing other people happy and seeing other people um, go through the tunnel and come out the other end just gives me purpose in life. It really does. So I think that's kind of why. And I'd also like to see myself come clean out of the tunnel, like 
very sometime soon, <laughs> you know. So I I hope that this this degree helps with that too. Today's program has raised any issues with you. You can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or the Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800. We'll also have links on our website to extra support services. Visit 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. I'm Ellen Liebeter. This has been Think Health. See you next week for more in health research and news. Thank you.